Welcome to Scandal.K12.us. Air Scandal K12 Curriculum is a true crime comedy podcast about bamboozling boards, sneaky superintendents, lame learning products, and teachers who are way too cool for school. This curriculum may contain references to potential descriptions of crimes against minors and the field of education. Listener discretion is always advised. And now time for the morning announcements. Good morning, Scandal K-12 students, home of the Fighting Rats. Go Rats! Attention students, attention students, this is the announcement. Let's stand for the state anthem of Washington, D.C. Actually, D.C. is not a state, but a territory, just like Guam, American Samoa, and the Northern Mariana Islands. The anthem appears to be, quote, our nation's capital, Take it away. Symbols of democracy are pinned against the coast. Okay, enough of that, Glee Club. That was inspiring, as it was also slightly nauseating. Now remember, students, if you are interested in joining our Glee Club, you can do so and be featured in an upcoming episode. Just go to scandalk12us.com forward slash Glee for information. Historically, education reform has come and gone, and the meaning changes. So educational reform is a moving target in terms of memetics, and historically, quote, reform was associated with the works of Horace Mann or John Dewey or the large, sweeping social changes such as desegregation. In the latter part of the last century and the first decades of this one, education reform is a mixed bag. Reformers are often at great odds with one another, so this will be the first in a series focusing on contemporary education reformers, touching on influential school reformers like Diane Ravidich, Betsy DeVos, and Kathleen Babineau-Blanco, Glenda Ritz, as well as, of course, who could forget, Bill Gates, Eli Broad, and George Soros. In an episode we're calling scandal.k12.us forward slash Iron Chancellor. Before we get on with our main announcement, let's first recognize some educators and students in the good old taxation without representation territory. First up is actually a principal who hails from Port Allen, Louisiana. He and his school traveled to D.C. as part of a trip, and he was apparently seduced by the bright lights and big city of the nation's capital, getting into a whole lot of trouble. Michael Camo was a family guy and principal at Holy Family Catholic School for five years and was a recipient of the 2015 Milken Award an award that it's given out by the Milken Family Foundation that was established by businessmen Lowell Milken and Michael Milken, philanthropist and convicted felon. While leading a large group of 7th and 8th grade students and their chaperones around D.C., it apparently meant that the principal needed to take a little me time. So with the kids tucked away in their beds in their hotel rooms and the chaperones sleeping away and one eye open at the watch, Camus went for a walk that took him through the heart of the nation's capital and right to Archibald's. Archibald's is a very popular gentleman's club just two blocks from Lafayette Square Park. Perhaps it was Archibald's, not the St. John's Church, which was the June 1, 2020 destination of the then-sitting president. Archibald's also seems to be a great spot if you're into that sort of thing and would like that kind of venue. It has an average Google rating of 3.3 stars out of 5, with one reviewer, Soyless in Seattle, claiming he saw someone resembling Hunter Biden smoking, quote, rock, but user... Amber Blackwell gave five stars saying, quote, The girls are friendly if you are friendly. The bar and waitstaff are attentive and professional. This is not the place to go if your budget is tight. It's less Ruby Tuesdays, more Del Frisco's. Apparently, Camus was expecting Ruby Tuesdays and was perhaps unfamiliar with Del Frisco's, since at the end of the night he refused to pay his bill and was sitting in the street outside, drink in hand. Police were called in and he and his service dog were arrested. Did we mention he had a service dog with him as he drunkenly sat in the street with a drink in hand, refusing to pay the bill for having strippers sit on his lap? WAFB9 reported that, quote, Numerous sources told Nine News investigators Camus had a dog with him at the strip club slash bar. When we think of a principal of a Catholic school who had a doggo accompany him to a D.C. strip club just a few blocks north of the White House where Hunter Biden may or may not have smoked crack, and that principal spent the night being entertained by exotic dancers while maybe the dog sniffed the poles or whatever dogs do in strip clubs. Anyway, both of them, we can imagine, were out in the streets surrounded by angry bouncers and angry dancers 
They have drinks in their hands. The little dog is barking at them drunkenly, spilling his little doggy drink with an umbrella in it. And the, the cops all show up and they arrest them both. And they had to break out little doggy handcuffs and read the dog as Miranda writes, but in barks. That sounds too good to be true. Unfortunately, it probably isn't true. The Advocate, Baton Rouge's News, Crime and Weather, looked a little deeper than, quote, numerous sources and claims that, quote, neither the arrest report nor the statement put out by the spokesman for the Diocese of Baton Rouge, nor the statement by the police mentioned a service dog with Camille at the time of his arrest, so you'd think that that arrest reports or any other documentation would certainly have mentioned a dog. His arrest and ultimately resignation had immediate reactions from the Holy Family School community. One member of the community posted, quote, If it was his own time during the night and the kids are being chauffeured, that's the word he used, by others, then who really cares? Have you ever been with that many kids? Plus days for that matter. And he's from Louisiana. We're lucky that's all he was doing. LOL. Remember, we have drive through dikery shops. He was just living like he's at home. LOL. Other members of the community had less charitable reactions, saying, quote, What a shame to throw it all away like this. No matter what his circumstances, he will never be able to recover from this. I'm so sorry for his family and all his students. Prior to joining the Holy Family School, Camus had resigned from another school, having been accused of misappropriating more than $100,000 in Katrina donations. While we couldn't find much additional information on the investigation, nor any results, we can wonder that Camus did get the Milken Award, an award given out by known philanthropist and convicted felon Michael Milken. Now, while we typically focus on educational staff, where would schools be without their students? Here is one student who should have skipped school for the day. According to ABC News, a, quote, 14-year-old boy was arrested after he allegedly pointed a handgun at another student. According to D.C. police, the Kramer Middle School student was in a school stairwell midday Monday when he allegedly pointed a 22 caliber handgun at someone and said, If you tell anyone, I will shot you. With the school having had metal detectors for some years, it was unknown how the firearm had gotten inside a secure building. Also, while the school is just across from the now-gentrified Navy Yard District, gentrification has not yet come to southeast Washington. Quote, Our students come to school with baggage, said Kramer Middle School counselor Tashika Duffy. According to Duffy, in an interview in WUSA 9's online magazine, quote, most of the students live within five to seven blocks of the school, and very few of them have ever left the area in their lives. Many of them wake up without their parents being home. Many have the responsibilities of adults thrust upon them. Some of these students have to get their siblings dressed and out to school before they can even make it here. School principal Roman Smith, who grew up in the area 30 years prior, said he had lost many students to violence but feels that they are slowly building a school where students, quote, see positivity, see positive people, see successful people. While all students need resources, Principal Smith says what is needed the most, what is most critical, are mentors so that the students can see how hard work and a positive approach can lead to success rather than the constant negativity and hopelessness that students are constantly exposed to in their daily lives. When you think about failing schools, it seems that Kramer Middle School would provide an example of exactly what sort of school school reformers want to reform away. One reformer who came to D.C. with proverbial guns blazing was Michelle Ree, the one-time champion of school reform, and more specifically, charter schools and high-stakes tests. For a time, Ree was a feature of TED Talks, PBS, Frontline, and a documentary waiting for Superman, David Guggenheim's 102-minute charter school infomercial. If you remember back then, if you were looking at periodicals, Ree's stern photo typically had her holding a broom or a stick or leaning on a table. She was all full of that Joe Lewis Clark energy. She was hailed by Oprah as a warrior woman for our times. You remember those pictures of Ree on magazines such as Time, Newsweek, and Education Week. Even though she had a busy schedule of reforming, she still found time to author the book Radical, Fighting to Put Students First a work called, quote, A National Treasure by fellow reformer and Waiting for Superman co-star, Jeffrey Canada. So let's start at the beginning. Michelle Ree was born and grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. There, we nailed that. I mean, unless you're Greta Tintin Eleonora Erman Thurnberg or Malila Yousafzai or Boyan Slat, most people's youth is reduced to a few lines, went to school, went to another school, went to college, and... Dot, dot, dot. 
So let's just skip to the and. And in her senior year of college, she signed up with Teach for America. For those of you who are not familiar with Teach for America, let's give a little overview. Founded in 1989 by Wendy Kopp, a student of Professor Marvin Bressler of Princeton, who was known for shaping much of Princeton's campus life in the 1960s, and who wrote such studies as one that looked at the socioeconomic outcomes of Catholic school education among males and concluded that there was no economic difference in success between a religious or secular schooling. You can read more about that in the American Journal of Sociology, Volume 69, Number 3, November 1963. What is perhaps more salient at this point is not the founding and history of Teach for America or the details of all their activities, since we'll be looking at the group in later episodes, but just to let you know what you'd expect as a student and kind of what the process is and what the outcomes are. When you apply to Teach for America, or TFA, you're joining an elite special forces of education. According to some sources, this is a prestigious and selective program and only 15% of applicants are accepted. It is said, at least by schools.magooch.com, that TFA acceptance is lower than that of the Harvard Law School. If you are among the lucky few, you get trained over the summer in an intensive five- to eight-week course, then you're given an assignment that was determined in the first two-week period that you got accepted before you did your training, and then you're sent there. And that sounds exciting. Not sure exactly where you're going to go. Not really sure what you're exactly going to do. But according to the current TFA website, your position is determined, quote, after you've accepted your TFA offer, spoken with staff members in your specific region, and completed the hiring process within a particular school district or charter school. After the TFA program, you're hired by a school district or charter school and won't work for the TFA. A research study in 2019 found that while many TFA alum are, quote, high-achieving college-educated adults, close quote, and are influential in state departments of education or prominent in charter school networks or otherwise occupy top positions, their, quote, beliefs about inequality and the tools by which to advance change are shaped by TFA, but not in a way unlike other cohorts who have gone through those traditional grueling years of graduate school work. This sounds like TFA and non-TFA educators share a common belief system until you see that the organization that conducted the research, Education Next, is considered a, quote, propaganda outlet for corporate education reform by the Center for Media and Democracy, which may itself be a propaganda outlet for, as Archie Bunker would put it, quote, some commie pinko Let's report a few key funders and contributors to Education Next and let you decide for yourself who they are. Promotional consideration provided by the Hoover Institution. For when you want war, revolution, and peace, now with 100% more Condoleezza Rice, one-time instigator of a potentially illegal war, and perhaps war criminal herself, think Hoover Institution. And thank you very much. Thank you very much. The Broad Family Foundation, Eli Broad, made so much money as a real estate magnet, he wants to send your kid to a for-profit charter school since nothing says quality education than private profits and public debt. Promotional consideration and travel arrangements, perhaps by the Koch brothers. If you're hacking up along from smog, but taking selfies on the new entrance to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, you are benefiting from Coke Industries, makers of CO2 emissions the world over. And when you hear Coke in education reform, you know they're here for your daughters. Also, special thanks to the Walton Foundation, one-time perhaps double agents for the People's Republic of China. You can depend on the Waltons for free market and school choice. Okay, 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 and special thanks to Bill Gates, the guy who's still angry that Steve Jobs beat him in the race to microchip you. When you think about technology dystopia, from where there's no escape, think Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. To be a contestant or get future reports, just send a postcard to Education Next, Harvard Kennedy School, 79 JFK Street, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 10138. Remember... This is a school Michelle Ree happened to be an alum of, so we're not saying they're biased, but we're just saying. Since the TFA is harder to get into than the Skull and Bone Society, the Molly Maguires, or to get into worship the Owl Shrine at the Bohemian Grove, we have to believe there's some camaraderie among people, past members and present members, and while they're not all brainwashed 
they do seem to develop a common cause with the program that continues to nurture long after they have left the program. Now, let's be serious. No exclusive club lets you just join and leave. No, you have to stay in, like the Mafia. It's an alum network, and they form a secret little club, and this is going to last your entire life. I mean, did any of us ever go to a private college other than to join a private and exclusive lifetime club? So after graduating Cornell in 1992 and completing the TFA Summer Institute, Ree went to teach at the Harlem Park Elementary School in Baltimore, Maryland. Today, Harlem Park Elementary School is best known for the 2016 viral video where a teacher made some rude and then racist rude comments to her class. And for that and other reasons, Harlem Park is rated 2.1 stars out of 5 on Google reviews by random strangers. And it is also reviewed at the bottom 50% of all 1,359 schools in Maryland, according to the 2020 state report, with only 2% of students achieving proficiency in math and 3% in language arts. Harlem Park Elementary School is a short 10-minute drive from Inner Harbor, which today is very, very different. In the 1990s, the Inner Harbor was adjacent to areas that were part of neighborhoods so rife with crime, poverty, and hopelessness that when it was leveled by a controlled explosion, people had a celebratory parade, a community-wide barbecue, and lit off fireworks, the largest of which, of course, took down the George B. Murphy Homes, named after a progressive owner of the first African-American newspaper, which unfortunately became segregated, run-down, open-air drug market, according to a former resident, and what former Baltimore Mayor Kurt Schmoke called, quote, warehouses of poverty. Back in the 1990s, the city had still what we would refer to today as the projects, and Harlem Park drew from a very tough neighborhood and these very projects. It took a tough-as-nails teacher to go in there and teach, and that's exactly what Michelle Reed did. Reed, from the start, was a no-nonsense teacher. Or was she all nonsense? It's hard to find unbiased sources, so we're trying to do the best we can to tell this story fairly. However, we rely a lot on community-based reporting, and this kind of tends to go in one direction. So bear with us. So we're going to set the stage by talking a little about schools in Baltimore in the early 1990s. That's the decade re-graduated college and joined Teach for America. To get you into the 90s mindset, the Bosnian War had just started. Ross Perot had run an unsuccessful independent campaign for the presidency, and Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back was a summer anthem just trailing slightly behind End of the Road by Boys to Men. The 1990s were full of flannel shirts, fanny packs, and bomber jackets. It was also full of crime and poverty, with Ronald Reagan's trickle-down economics blending into Bill Clinton's welfare reform. And Baltimore was in tough shape by the 1990s. It was once a city with a strong industrial economy, like a lot of them in the mid-Atlantic states. But Baltimore City languished, and especially after the 1968 riots, with middle-class suburbanization and the start of the industrial outsourcing. But as we said, no area of the city was worse off than the Inner Harbor, a collection of abandoned warehouses and dilapidated housing, where you're more likely to catch crabs socially than in the Harbor Bay. Now, during this time, the city's public schools were managed by the Baltimore City Public Schools under the control of the then-mayor, Kurt Schmoke, the first elected African-American mayor. Mayor Schmoke had been elected in 1987 and was making the best of very tough times. He knew that improving schools would help the communities, but this was a tough uphill battle. Over time, he seemed to be making some progress. Schmoke was awarded the National Literacy Award by President Bush the W in 1992, but the system he was handed was certainly a mess. Baltimore was ranked the ninth worst in the nation, with one of the highest concentrations of high school dropouts trailing the nation's taint that is Trenton, New Jersey. According to the Baltimore Sun, quote, during the 1990-1991 school year, a total of 36.7% of the students in the city missed a month of school or more. At one particular school, 74.2% missed a month of school or more that year. Mayor Schmoke was willing to try something new, as, of course, desperate people are often willing to entertain unproven ideas or wild harebrained schemes, like exploring school privatization. 
So enter Education Alternatives Incorporated, a company founded in Michigan by former Xerox salesman John Goley because he saw his own children slip through the cracks and he wanted to dedicate his life to making a difference. Just who is John Goley? Well, according to the Baltimore Sun, well, he was very quick to tell his story of a family with struggling students and how this inspired him to start his own educational venture. Goley actually wouldn't give, quote, his son's names or other personal details about his life, his wife's name, the length of his marriage, his own experience as a student in public schools, or his experience working with public schools. This made a lot of people to believe that John Goley wasn't there to help his child unless his child was the almighty greenback. If you're going to be a very private person, don't talk about personal stories as part of your founding mythology. At least that is what one uncle said to me who had trouble during an underwater basket weaving class and inspired us to create this podcast. So hats off to Uncle What's-His-Name, wherever you are. In 1986, Goley founded the Educational Alternatives, whether for his son or for the love of money. He launched the Tesseract Schools. These schools were named after A Wrinkle in Time, since we can only assume naming the project after a Lord of the Rings character was far too nerdy, and naming it after an Ayn Rand character was too much a dead giveaway to the true plans. Whatever Goley's motives, it sold, and it seemed that Baltimore was ready to try something completely different. Baltimore Mayor Schmoke was also a fan of Goley, saying, quote, He's got the kind of tenacity that a person needs to succeed in private enterprise. He's an ambitious guy. And I don't say that in a pejorative way. He just wears a different tie than I wear. Well, we're not sure what the insult was in saying he was ambitious, but we sort of think we might know, or might know we might know. And we're not sure what the ties looked like, but those different ties Goalie wore got his company a $133 million five-year contract with Baltimore Public Schools to run nine schools in the district. They wanted to see improvements using these nine schools who were going to adopt the Tesseract curriculum and educational alternatives management in order to make the case for further school privatization in Baltimore. As you may have guessed, one of those wrinkling time schools was Harlem Park Elementary School, a mere few minutes drive from Lincoln Park, a place known for many things, but most recently known for the award-winning podcast, Serial. While Education Alternatives Incorporated was a for-profit company and had managed to go public a little before, by the time Rhee got to her Teach for America assignment to work for the school, the company was attempting to finally make a profit. And they had put it all in on the roulette wheel on Baltimore. Rhee got some notoriety almost at once. Rhee was mentioned in an article by the Hartford Current since Education Alternatives Incorporated, or EAI, was attempting to make inroads into Hartford, Connecticut schools, so the newspaper did a little footwork and they sent someone to D.C. to examine Tesseract work. They spoke to a number of people, and one of these people was Michelle Rhee. According to the Hartford Current, Rhee was noted wearing a watch with a Tesseract logo and said, quote, Tesseract is an idea of how schools should be run and how kids should learn. It means hands-on learning. It means that kids should have more choices and ownership over the day that they learn when they're actually involved. That certainly showed that uh, Miss Ree had drunk the educational alternatives Kool-Aid. And I'm sorry, uh, we know you super nerds are out there. We did mean flavor aid. Because while Kool-Aid is a common phrase in association with Jim Jones and his death cult, uh, it was actually flavor aid that Jim Jones used. Anyway, that's a bit of a digression. Let's move on. At this time in her career, Ree was a second grade co-teacher since her first year, while some of her classroom management techniques had been questioned by several staff. What happened is best explained in the words of Ree herself, who later told the story on herself. However, the Washington Post, for reasons of their own, later removed the audio. Let's look into that. 
The Washington Post had been criticized for removing the recording when it became controversial, as well as it was accused of promoting re in a conflict of interest since WAPO, the Washington Post, was then owned by the Graham family firm, a firm that owned Kaplan, a for-profit test and test preparation company that gave the family firm, quote, the majority of its profits. It may have led to some favorable coverage by that particular media outlet, then known as the Washington Post, and now known as WAPO. Jay Matthews, WAPO's education beat writer and author of the 1996 book Class Struggle, available on Amazon, Amazon or Amazon, or wherever books are sold, was accused by many education advocates of having a re-positive take in various stories in the paper. In 2013, the media critic Bob Sumbry claimed that the WAPO and Matthews gave re, quote, bonding coverage of our greatest education celebrity, sweeping her inconsistencies and lack of experience under the rug. Now, thankfully, a cranky old person on a blog transcribed the recording that was formerly on the WAPO. In this transcript, Re recalls an incident in her classroom experience. It's transcribed by nyceducator.com based on the now-removed post. And you have to remember, the laughter and applause is in the annotation. We're going to present this as a dramatic reading, a little bit of theater on something that we're going to call scandal.k12.us after dark. For me, it was 18 years ago that I first graduated from college and I got my first teaching job. But I can remember it like it was yesterday. I mean, I have these vivid memories in my head. So? So? I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of them. I can remember like it was yesterday, the day that I was in the classroom, and I I didn't have a very good classroom management in my first year of teaching, and so I was trying every single management technique that I could, some of them really not so good, but I remember the day, I remember the day that we were particularly rowdy, and we had to head down for lunch, and my class was very, very well known in the school because you could hear them traveling wherever because they were so out of control. And so I thought, okay, they're particularly amped up today, so I got to do something about it. So I decided, okay, kids, we're going to do something special today. I lined everybody up. And I was like, gotta be real quiet on our way down to the cafeteria. And then I took little pieces of masking tape and put them on everybody's lips. Laughter begins. And I was like, you can't break the seal. Don't move your lips. So all the kids were okay. I put them on all the lips and we're going down the hallway. I was like, oh my gosh, this works so well. And we get down to, you know, the cafeteria. And we're all lined up outside the cafeteria. I was like, take the tape off. And, and I realized that I had not told the kids to lick their lips beforehand. So, and like, the skin is coming off their lips big laughs and and they're bleeding and I had a class of 35 kids who are crying more big laughs and other teachers are walking by and like what are you doing so just to recap she is teaching seven-year-old children when Ree was confronted with this story, she indignantly claimed that the only reason anybody knew about this incident was that she told the story. She then went on to tell a more hospitable and corrected version of the story, but unfortunately that still included tape being put on the mouths of children. Whatever way one puts it, a suburban, private school-educated, Princeton graduate, upper-middle-class woman taping black children's mouths shut just, well, it isn't a good look. 
For the next two academic years at the school, we had co-teachers, so perhaps her teaching strengths could be put forward towards improving test scores, and she didn't have to worry about kind of iffy classroom management. And improve those test scores she did. Or perhaps she didn't. Ree claimed that her teaching, free from union oversight of the burden of a master's in education, allowed her to move students from an average of the 13th percentile on national standardized tests to the 90th percentile or higher on those same national standardized tests. To many, especially some of you teachers out there, this may sound absolutely unbelievable. It's an absolutely unbelievable accomplishment, which is exactly what it appears to be. Unbelievable, since it is not founded in the very data you're supposed to draw from in a modern educational profession. You know, that data-driven classroom practice? A former D.C. teacher, Guy Brandenburg, posted on his blog a study that presented test scores from the Baltimore school where Reed taught from 1992 to 1995. The blog post generated intense discussion in educational circles. Brandenburg claimed that the data shows that Reed, quote, lied repeatedly in an effort to make gains in her classes and look more impressive than they actually were. While the data was historic, the blog post was released long after Reed was a teacher or even in D.C. schools, Ree did respond to the allegations and denied making up accomplishments. She later said that she would have, quote, framed her resume differently or, quote, talked about her accomplishments in more muted tones. But those muted tones and those different framing is changed when she's already gone through several jobs, like telling a university when you retire, you know, the Harvard I attended was actually in the Conch Republic and actually was in the back room of Captain Tony Saloon. And yes, I was just drunk for four years. Ree also fired back at Brandenburg, saying it was a hit piece and his blog was unfounded, even though Brandenburg was drawing conclusions not from his own opinion, but extrapolating it from a 1995 168-page research report published by the Center for Educational Research, University of Maryland, which concluded that the work in Tesseract schools didn't live up to their claims. Now, for bonus points for some of you keeping track, not only did the report never mention Ree or any individual teacher accomplishments, there was no classroom-level data from the school to back up Ree's claim of improvement, made much worse by note that many of the lowest-performing students were truant much of the time and may not have even been tested by the school. But what are we to say? Apparently, this is a classic story of She Said, 1995 Center for Educational Research Report Said. So it's looking a little bit more like her six weeks didn't prepare her for classroom management and three years of teaching may have led to average improvements. But, you know, it doesn't matter because Ree still claims that she stood out for her ability to teach. She claimed in her official autobiography that, quote, her outstanding success in the classroom earned her claim on Good Morning America and The Home Show as well as The Wall Street Journal and The Hartford Correct. Educator advocate and perhaps longest time blogger Bob Summerby begs to differ. Delving into the claim, he could not find that this early notoriety was true, other than she was mentioned in the Harvard Courant in their article about the Tesseract program, which you can scroll back to and re-listen to. Perhaps she took a clipping from that newspaper in Hartford and was able to say, Look, Mom, I'm in the papers. You know, good for her. Fake it till you make it. And with that, we're going to take a very short break. Whatever her results of her teaching at the school, the results of Tesseract schools were not impressive enough for Mayor Schmoke, and the contract was prematurely canceled between Baltimore Public Schools and Educational Alternatives Incorporated since external auditors did not see improvements, the type of improvements that were advertised, and basically the mayor thought that money could be better used for other ventures. As a result, Educational Alternatives stock dropped and the company struggled but such is the risk with any venture with an unproven product. Michelle Ree must have seen the writing on the walls. She also seemed to think that three years was long enough that just happened to coincide with the canceling of the contract anyway, left the confines of dingy Lincoln Park for the oak-lined trees and Harvard Yard of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Maybe she could take what she had learned in the classroom such as taping the mouths of children shut, and try to apply it to the world. What better place to build on those social experiments than the Cold War's vestigial monkey's paw, the Harvard Kennedy School of Public Policy, an institute with notable graduates such as TV personality Bill O'Reilly, Turkish strongman's second favorite son, 
Bilal Erdogan and Pierre Elliott Trousseau, former Prime Minister of Canada from 1968 to 1984, best known for being Canada's third longest serving Prime Minister behind William King and John MacDonald. Things seem to be going well at Harvard Yard, and one day in 1997, to follow her story, Reid just happened to have lunch with Wendy Kopp, the founder of Teach for America. When they met, according to Ree, Kopp was so impressed with Ree's grasp of educational issues, her ideas as a change agent, and her understanding of what students really need, Ree was given her very own nonprofit, a little organization she called the New Teacher Project. According to philanthropynewsdigest.org, number one name in boring memes, quote, the New Teacher Project was launched in 1997 as a spinoff of Teach for America, the organization founded by Wendy Kopp. The New Teacher Project, or TNTP, is a national nonprofit organization. It was formed to address the growing issues of teacher shortages and teacher quality throughout the country. Since its inception, the organization has recruited and trained more than 10,000 new teachers and started 39 programs in 18 states. Ree was also credited with being the founder of the organization, but she seems to just a founder, since prior to the founding in 1997, the New Teacher Project was already filing taxes as a nonprofit since 1995. Unfortunately, at the time of recording, the older tax returns are not online, and we're still waiting for them. Not that there's anything too strange about an organization being founded in one year and then founded another year. What matters is that Michelle Ree was now head of an organization, the New Teacher Project. It was there that she was going to develop her leadership and understanding of education. A mere three years later in 2000, the earliest publicly available 990 nonprofit tax filings online, the New Teacher Project reported no individual gifts or contributions, or fundraisers to the charity, but it did receive almost $5.5 million in funds via contracts for, for, according to Part 7, Line 93, quote, consulting services. Now, that's not vague at all. You'd think they'd list more activities than consultant services, but this is just a tax return. Over a few short months, under RE, the new teacher project increased notoriety for reform-minded people such as Oprah Winfrey, the Dr. Frankenstein of weird science who helped create the monsters known as Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, and anti-vaxxer Jenny McCarthy, as well as support from Eli Broad, the 233rd wealthiest person in the world and the 78th wealthiest person in the United States, and of course from accolades like Joel Klein, documentary filmmaker, published author, lawyer, and one-time chancellor to the New York City Department of Education before he himself went to work for Fox News owner and one-time education magnate Rupert Murdoch. According to Ree, it was Klein who recommended her for the job to Mayor Adrian Fenty of Washington, D.C., and he was so impressed by her experience, he signed a mayoral order single-handedly appointing Michelle Ree as acting chancellor of District of Columbia Public Schools. Miss Ree had gone to Washington. Well, of course, it is safe to say that D.C. schools were a mess. Enrollment was dropping in public schools, in part due to poaching by charter schools, since the District of Columbia Public Charter School Board was established in 1996, and in part to the quality of life in our nation's capital, where murders and crime were common, and the lure of cheap homes in a relatively safe area of Prince George's County, just a few miles north of the city, allowed many urban families to finally become suburban families. The dropout rate in D.C. schools was much higher than the national average and other comparable urban districts, as was the per-student cost. Costs were mostly driven up by legacy spending, benefits for retired staff at all levels, and eaten up by building costs. According to some reports, 80% of the public schools were considered under-enrolled. Or you can read that as urban students weren't just piled on on top of one another without the ability to move down the halls. This extra space in school buildings, smaller class sizes, and the higher than national average school cost per student sounds like a recipe for success. However, unfortunately, none of this translated into student achievements nor a higher graduation rate. And, of course, the churn of teachers, that is, the rate of teachers not returning to the classroom semester after semester or year over year, was actually higher than average in the nation. And that leads to its own costs, not just to the school budget in order to bring new teachers on board, but also to the quality of teachers and the continuity of the classroom experience. While many may argue that schools are not the panacea to every social issue and teachers can't be expected to be social workers, police therapists, and educators at the same time. But to reformers, however, poverty and community issues are excuses, not reasons for a failing school. And the inability for a teacher to take on all those roles is a personal failure, 
not a systemic one. Henry was ready to cut through those excuses like a CrossFit trainer yelling at a room full of creatine-bloated suburban parents on leg day. Re had achieved the American dream. She skipped the mailroom. She passed by years of junior account management. She avoided being assistant scrum master. She got to the top job of a large district, having very little experience running complex operations, large-scale budgets, or navigating educational policies. If you think about it, she moved from managing elite university-educated and often socially connected staff to working with a diverse, primarily African-American school district staff with teachers, many of whom grew up in D.C. She moved from an organization that had 11 leadership staff and 307 program staff, most of whom were probably just out of university, to an institution in charge of 10,000 employees, some of whom were senior staff in the district before she was but a glint in her father's eye. For you out there with your scientific calculators in your pockets, pull them out, because to put this into perspective, the last year Ree worked at the New York Teachers Project in 2008, her organization had a $25 million budget reported in the IRS 990. And of course, the 990 are what charities file each year and are publicly available. As Chancellor of Washington, D.C., she was now in charge of a billion-dollar budget. So you try making a career jump where your organization's institutional revenue goes up 3,600% without taking out the Cali, Sinaloa, or Medellin cartels and declaring yourself the El Chapo of education. If you're like the rest of us, we need experience on our resumes saying we clean toilets before we can get a job cleaning toilets. But when you're connected to the top players in society, your anthem is, take a chance on me. According to a 2008 article titled, The Lightning Rod, in The Atlantic, the nation's most Pacific publication, re quote, charged in as chancellor of the D.C. public schools, welding blackberries and data in a giant axe. She has made a city with possibly the country's worst public schools ground zero for education reform and attracted a cadre of young zealots some critics call rebots. The Wall Street Journal, a broadsheeted for bankers since 1889, in their article, quote, Reforming D.C. Schools, which is exactly the sort of puns our episode has been trying to avoid, Ree was upset that schools were not filled to capacity. She was also angry about the principals and their jobs, and she was also angry that there was not enough charter schools in the district, and of course, she hated teacher tenure with a special passion. If only teacher tenure could be removed, all the other issues would just fall into place and students would indeed reach for the stars. Recalled teacher tenure, quote, the holy grail of teacher unions, but it has no educational value for kids. It only benefits adults. And she was looking to dump that grail in the cesspool of work-at-will laws. So let's spend a minute on teacher tenure, since it's important to Ree's mission and something that people who hate teachers use to prove that Miss Henderson is the issue, except that usually in this scenario, it's often Miss Limpopo or Miss Sanchez who serves as the model of the lazy do-nothing teacher. Teacher tenure began in New Jersey in 1909 and was born out of the 1880s recognition that favoritism and corruption had become rampant. If you remember from your own 98 history course, the 1880s was a time of lax labor laws and the infamous Tammany Hall, a political machine that promoted patron positions and has become synonymous with any pay-to-play system. Wanting protections from cronyism or nepotism as well as political protections, such as when one political party took over a county or state from another political party, teachers and university professors demanded better protections. They found these protections in a system we call tenure. For this episode, we're going to focus just on K-12 tenure and not academic tenure of university professors. Now, according to the organization called ProCon, now a property of the Encyclopedia Britannica, and historically, Sun never said on the British Empire publication, quote, after the Great Depression, teachers began to organize politically in order to receive funding and job protections. Teachers' unions recognized for tenure clauses in their contracts with state or individual school districts. By 1940, 70% of K-12 public school teachers had job protections. In the mid-1950s, the number grew to over 80%. Of course, critics say that this system of tenure makes it impossible to fire bad teachers. You know, those stereotypical lazy teachers like Miss Limpopo or Miss Sanchez who just sit at their desk reading the newspaper while the children drill holes in their desks with pencils. Those teachers get a pass. Even when they're misbehaving, even when they do something wrong, all that happens to them is they're sent to rubber rooms where they're isolated from children but otherwise do no work and receive a full salary and benefits. According to the American Federation of Teachers, this is not the case. Quote, 
Typically, tenure guarantees that teachers must be given a reason, documentation, and a hearing prior to being fired. The practice recognizes that in a mass profession like public school teaching, there will be some poor performers among the ranks of tenured teachers. Tenure does not prevent their termination. It does require that employers show just cause, quote, a reasonable ground for action for termination. True, this is a biased source since the American Federation for Teachers, or AFT, is the Roman Cura, the Holy See of Teachers Unions. But you can see that tenure is there to make it difficult to terminate, not impossible. The AFT does concede that, quote, tenure for K-12 teachers is not tenure in the sense of university professors in the way they have tenure, which is typically one after seven or eight years, and comes with stronger protections, but comes after about three years. And after tenure, you can still be fired. It is true, the AFT concedes, that some teacher removal processes have taken as long as two years, but this is not the norm. The protections, it is argued, far outweigh the occasional misuse. In the past, teachers were fired for things like being pacifists during a war, socialists during a Red Scare, not buying enough liberty bonds when the government needed money, being Quaker wearing a funny hat, or being African American and being in the Jim Crow South, or belonging to an unpopular organization such as the NAACP, the ACLU, the Odd Fellows, or joining the wrong book club. You could also be fired for actually teaching, such as if you taught sex education or talked about LBGTQ plus issues. Or, and this is true, you could also be fired for getting married. Yes, young women need to be like Samantha from Sex and the City. You wanted some spark in your teacher when she arrived every morning. And also in the words of Samantha, with all that, for the sake of this radio and its ratings, energy, quote, tell a man, I hate you. You have the best sex of your life. Tell him I love you. You're probably not ever going to see him again. To which we add, and you get to keep your job. Rhee wanted to take it back to the good old days. She wanted to have the power to hire, fire, and retire right at her hands. And she was open about it. She said she wanted direct control of teachers in the district so she could cut down on waste. That is, close schools, get rid of staff. In 2008, Rhee proposed giving teachers the option of linking pay to performance in exchange for teachers giving up tenure. Rhee was actually making an offer few could refuse. You see, in 2008, first-year teachers were making about $42,000 a year. Teachers with advanced degrees were paid 52, and long-time teachers, often PhDs, they maxed out at about 87000 a year. Rhee was offering higher compensation for dropping tenure. Starting teachers would be 55000 master's degree earns you 99 and teachers with 15 years in the classroom, well, that could earn you $130,000 a year. This sounded very generous. The union, of course, suspected the offer. Now, after a lot of give and take among the membership, the teachers' union finally relented and allowed their membership to vote on Rhee's proposal, and actually, an astounding 80% of teachers voted in favor of it. The following month, Rhee fired 5% of teaching staff, or 241 teachers, with 76 additional educators terminated because no child left behind licensing was an issue. In addition to those who had to pack up their dirty desk mug of broken pencils, sad, constantly dying houseplant and NCTE scholastic Nalgene bottle, replaced an additional 137 teachers on notice for being, quote, minimally effective, even though prior performance reviews had not determined that they were so. The D.C. Teachers Union issued a statement to its membership, We told you, don't take the candy and get in the van. To which Ree responded, No backsies. And we're just going to have to stop there for now because this will be a two-parter. And in our next episode, we're going to get into those reforms, how they went in D.C. We'll give both progress monitoring as well as Ree's own summative assessments and her legacy in D.C. Before we conclude, we feel you should get one last story. Allentown School District placed a teacher temporarily on absence for taking part in the January protest, riot, insurrection, LARP, Civil War in Washington, D.C. A letter from Superintendent Thomas Parker does not identify the teacher's name, where he works, or his extent of involvement in the protest, but claimed to have images of the teacher engaged in activities, but also didn't elaborate nor identify what sort of activities. As expected, the district's Facebook freaked out, and one user of the social media site, and front for our lizard overlords, posted, quote, I'm appalled at this. This is no proof that a man did anything that was wrong. He was there to support his political views. How dare we as a district dictate how our teachers are supposed to think? Another rando Calrissian posted to the district page, quote, I understand the free speech argument, but I was also taught in college that public educators are, 
for better or worse, held to a higher standard than the average employed person. Perhaps he should find a job in a district that better suits his values. It turns out that the accusation and suspension snowballed into the teacher being named informally on social media, and he was later identified as Jason Moorhead. Moorhead claims his reputation has been destroyed and his family is fearful because of the backlash from the district statement, and he says he's incorrectly connected with the violent uprising in the U.S. Capitol. Moorhead claims that he and his friends walked around the Washington Monument, tried to get close to the White House, ate a hot dog, and went back to the bus after the rally and did not find out about the storming until later, and then only from social media. I definitely have some conservative values and beliefs, but they are never part of what I do in the classroom, he asserted. I've always encouraged my kids to be critical thinkers and to form their own opinions, one that they can be proud to have. The 17-year veteran teacher, who until recently worked in the majority-minority district in Allentown. Currently, the now unemployed insurrection-adjacent pedagogue is suing the district for ruining his life, worse than the administration he supported. And we will give an update as this unfolds in future episodes. If you've liked what you've heard, head on over to your app and give us a review. We mean it. Now. Do it now. Do it now. Or you'll forget. Do it now. Go over to the app. Just open the app. Open the app, Samantha. Jerry, open the app. And rate us five stars. Also, if you can support us financially, turn over your unemployment check or any relief money you might have, give it to Patreon, to us. You can turn that money into sweet, sweet sound. And in doing so, we might give you swag and eventually bonus content. But we're not going to promise anything. But maybe we'll give you something like scandal.k12.us after dark. A reminder that if you want to contribute to the podcast in a creative way, join our Glee Club. Do your best or worst state anthem or school song. Leave a voicemail at 518-945-8553. Give your name, the name you want to use, the title of the song, and then sing as much of that song as you can remember. You can find a list of state songs in the show notes at scandalk12us.com forward slash glee. As always, we thank our sources, primary sources, and soundscape sounds. Credits will be listed on the website, scandalk12us.com. Free Sounds allows us to add a soundscape to all our episodes. We're very thankful for this project. Do keep them in your thoughts and prayers and perhaps donate to the cause. A little cash or maybe a sound. Remember, tell us and we forget. Teach us and we remember. Screw us over. You're on scandal.k12.us. Class dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>